2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rebecca Trickington, and I am so pleased to be joined today by Dr. Sara Rahnama to discuss her new book, The Future is Feminist, Women and Social Change in Interwar Algeria. Sara, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So Dr. Rahnama is an assistant professor of history at Morgan State University in Maryland, where she directs the program for the study of the Middle East and North Africa. The Future is Feminist is a fall 2023 release from Cornell University Press and is her first book. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, And The Future is Feminist is a story of women's rights in Algeria during the 1920s and 30s, which was, of course, a time of major social change for women across the Middle East and North Africa. And the book looks at several areas of new developments for women, from education to employment to clothing and at how different parts of Algerian society understood and responded to those changes. And I so enjoyed reading this because you bring in such a rich base of sources from a range of really different voices on the topic of the so-called woman question. Um, There's religious leaders, nationalist reformers, French feminists, and of course Algerian women themselves. And you give each of them space without losing the complexity of all of those different strands of thought. So I think the book does a really flawless job in tracing the origins of their thinking um, and in tying colonial Algeria to a larger international conversation about women's rights that's happening not only through colonial channels and international forums, but also across the Middle East. Um, But before I say too much about this book, tell me a bit about your own research background and what first drew you to this topic.
1: So this is actually a funny question. Um, growing up
2: as the daughter
1: of Iranian immigrants and growing up as a veiled Muslim in a kind of post-September 11th American world, when I initially came to the study of history as an undergraduate, I wanted nothing to do with the Middle East. Um, and and specifically, you know, ideas about Muslim women, which I was coming into contact with in my everyday life all the time. It um, was so kind of inundated with it. I thought, no, I don't want to study this is too close to home you know no thanks um and so i started kind of with an interest in european history um and i felt very much like in the case of france in particular that that colonialism had so much explanatory power to make sense of france as a society today um and so i was really interested in colonialism and in my during my master's, I was writing about Black feminists in Paris and in the interwar period. So I was really interested in the interwar period as this moment of, you know, massive transition globally. Uh, but when I started my PhD research, I was, I wanted to kind of shift and focus more on colonial spaces. I was kind of tired of what I felt like was this emphasis on the intellectual life and intellectual output of, of cities like Paris and London. And, and I wanted to instead think about like what was happening in Algiers, uh, for example. Um, and so my very first semester at Hopkins, I started um, kind of digging around in Algerian newspapers. There was a couple newspapers I was able to get via microfilm sent to Baltimore um, and I started kind of reading and um, immediately see these articles, some of the articles that are now like real centerpieces within the book that call the Prophet Muhammad, for example, the first Arab feminist. And I'm like, what? (laughs) <laughs> this feels this feels really interesting and i start looking to kind of social histories of algeria to try and help me make sense of what i was finding in these newspapers um and i could not find a satisfactory explanation of like why why were people really turning to feminism as a Uh, as a kind of path out of what they were experiencing in their everyday lives. Why this resurgence of feminism? Why, you know, connecting it to Islam? All of these questions that I had that were unanswered. Um, And so, you know, I kind of had to keep digging. (laughs) And here
2: we are. Well, this will be a great resource for everyone coming after you who is also searching for those topics. Um, Before we start talking about Algeria specifically, could you give me a little bit of a landscape of this period across the Middle East and North Africa. So of course the interwar period is a time of major changes to legal rights and social opportunities. Um, What did that look like in other countries in the region and what was motivating those changes?
1: So um, in, a, in a lot of different Middle Eastern spaces, um, and this is pretty well documented in, in the, the history already, um, there, there are these kind of massive upheavals that you're mentioning happening. Um, so Egypt, Palestine, Syria and Lebanon, um, there are these kinds of feminist movements that are cropping up that are really women led um, mostly by elite women. Um, but that are addressing a wide range of social issues, so education, um, you know, various political rights. Uh, many of them are kind of positioned against European colonialism. Um, and then on the other hand, there are these kind of feminist projects or women's advancements projects that are taken up by uh, leaders in Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan. Um, and for them, there it's more of a top-down process, a state-led process in which. Um, You have state leaders who really believe that part of the metric of a modern society is the status of women. Um, And so it's necessary to, you know, uplift women, whether it's through um, education or unveiling or, uh, you know, in the case of Turkey, political rights. Um, And so those are the kinds of two models that I I kind of identify um, in, in the book.
2: And where does Algeria fall on that? What distinguishes Algeria from these other countries?
1: So the most obvious thing that sets Algeria apart is its status as a settler colony. Uh, So in 1936, for example, there's a million settlers and the rest of the population is about six million. Um, And so that huge settler society that's in place since the beginning of the French occupation means that political life and social life, economic life in Algeria is 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 really defined by that, uh, that colonial, the colonial system in place. Um, and so that produces all of these different constraints that I kind of explore in the book um, and that shape what happens in Algeria um, but in terms of women's rights and, and and feminism another really important question is class so like I mentioned um, in a lot of other Middle Eastern spaces these movements are being led by elite women um, who you know might have had a private education various forms of education um, in Algeria one of the consequences of this settler colonial system is that women's education is com- is very very constrained um, and so you don't have that same class of elite women who have, you know, the kind of buying power to be, you know, <laughs> wearing, you know, silk stockings and, you know, all of the kind of metrics of elite womenhood, womanhood um, that are shared, you know, in Europe and, and in other spaces in the Middle East, you know, don't really exist in Algeria. Um, and, and also in terms of education, of course, you, you don't have that same class of kind of elite women to lead a feminist movement in the same way. Um, and so... That I would say also produces quite different circumstances on the ground.
2: Before I follow up on that, I wanna ask you a little bit about the title of this book, which I love. So, The Future is Feminist. Um, This is not just an allusion to that great 1970s feminist t-shirt, The Future is Female, um, but it actually reflects the discourse of 1930s Algerian thinkers who are linking their imagined Algerian future to the emancipation of women. Can you talk a little bit more about that thinking um, and about some of the feminist possibilities that they were envisioning?
1: Well, one of the things that jumped out at me immediately conducting this research was the really remarkable consensus among a really wide range of social actors that women's advancement was going to be the thing that would propel Algeria forward despite the constraints of of colonialism. Um, And so... In terms of you know, what I mean by feminist, or what I, I, I'm I'm kind of adopting a kind of um, fluid understanding of feminism um, to mean kind of anything. I adopt Margot Baudron's uh, definition, which I detail in the book, but really the idea that feminism involves an awareness of the constraints on women because of their gender and a desire to kind of address those constraints. Um, And I say when we think of feminism in this way and we're not necessarily looking for a movement led by women or with very particular things, it opens the door to a really wide range of actors who are, you know, who are engaging in this kind of intellectual work. So in terms of what people were actually envisioning, um, women's education is a huge, huge uh, point of discussion. There's a lot of uh, people who who say that this is women's education is going to be um, the thing that will kind of elevate families, elevate the whole of society. Um, There's a discussion around women's labor possibilities and how um, women could be contributing to society in a much larger way if there were different forms of work that were open to them. Um, there's a discussion about you know women's leadership roles and how in in other Middle Eastern spaces women are serving as these kind of social leaders in so many different arenas. But you know Algeria isn't able to experience that. Um, and so there's all these conversations about how Algeria is lacking what is happening elsewhere in the world, um, particularly in the Middle East, um, and this real desire that you know if we could just get ourselves there, if we could just start making progress towards that, then this whole world of advancement could, or modernity, could kind of open up to us.
2: So given that you are opening the door to that huge range of actors, could you talk a little bit about your source base for this book? Um, What are the documents? What are the new perspectives that you're drawing on to tell this story? um, And what do they add to the historiography of work on Algeria in this period?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, I'll just say I started this project as a graduate student, very critical of, you know, the, the, the many, many scholars who work on um, North Africa, you know, solely from the vantage point of French archives. Um, and I'll say, you know, at this point, I have a little bit more sympathy for them because of how challenging getting access to Algerian archives was. I mean, the visa alone is, is proving impossible for many people these days. Um, and, and then there's this whole bureaucratic process to get access to the archives and then a wide variety of rules that are difficult to make sense of once you get there. Um, and so, you know, I did a tiny bit of research in Tunisian archives and immediately, you know, it was so easy. And I immediately texted my friends who are also historians of Algeria, like, what are we doing? Why did we do this? We should have been working on Tunisia this whole time. Um, <laughs> so, um. You know, I'll just say, yeah, I have a, I have a, some more sympathy um, for that. But but yeah, no. So I was I was really, really lucky in that I was able to go to Algeria, spend many months there um, and uh, and, you know, get into kind of state archives, local Wilaya archives Um uh, you know, random archives that friends introduced me to, like the archives of the Archdiocese of Algiers. Um, you know, different things that that proved useful, thankfully. Um, so there's a wide range of kind of archives, both in France and and Algeria. Um, but really, the main source base in the book is the press. Um, and particularly the French and Arabic language press. And I really argue that when we look at the Arabic sources, we are we can be, you know, we see more clearly um, all of Algeria's connections to ideologically and socially to the Middle East, which... When I talk about this with historians of the Middle East, they're like, obviously, obviously, Algerians were reading, you know, other Arab thinkers and, uh, you know, were influenced by their ideas. Um, but I think in the in the historiography of, of Algeria, we've been so focused on this colonial relationship between France and Algeria that we've kind of um, inadvertently obfuscated other kinds of connections. Um, so I, I argue that the Arabic language sources are really, really important because first of all, they illuminate this whole world of of feminist discussions, um, but also they show the way that those discussions are shaped by a a kind of look towards the Middle East as well.
2: Absolutely. And a shout out to the Tunisian National Archives, which are in fact. So
1: good.
2: (laughs) They're so lovely. Um, So let's turn to the uh, first chapter of your book. And this chapter outlines what you call the, quote, ecosystem of intellectual energy devoted to Muslim women. So could you just describe what that ecosystem consists of and who are some of the main communities that are participating in this debate? Sure. So this was really
1: one of the challenges of the book, I'll just note, is that on one hand, as you're reading about these discussions about women, you want to understand, you know, who are these people? Where are their kind of ideological, um, you know, affiliations, where do they belong in society, all of these kinds of questions. And so on one hand, I'm doing this work of mapping the different communities and I'll get into who some of those are. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you're, you also in the interwar period are really struck by the fluidity of these kinds of community boundaries. So people straddle multiple different communities. They might be, you know, um, Yeah. In terms of religion, in terms of social position, in terms of class, in terms of, um, you know, so many education, all of these different factors, uh, political leanings, political parties, all these different factors. um, There's just an enormous amount of overlap and movement between different groups as well. Um, And so I kind of try to outline these communities and also say, you know, we can't rely on too neat of uh, categorizations because that uh, that, you know, kind of covers up some of that fluidity. Um, but the main, main actors, I would say, um, the first group that really, um, you know, brought forth the discussions about women in a big and very consistent way, I would argue, are the group of Algerians who are educated in the French colonial system to then go and teach in French colonial schools, most of them for boys. Um, but so there's a group called the School Teachers of Indigenous Origin, and they have their own publications Um, and their own kind of association. Um, and they write a lot about the status of Algerian girls, how, you know, limited their access to education is, how, uh, you know, the impact that this has on Algerian society. And they really see themselves as vanguards who are able to kind of speak to Algerian society, but also maybe provide a model through assimilation to kind of French culture that other Algerians can adopt towards their own, for their own benefit. Um, and they're mostly publishing in French. Um, and then I would say the other big community is that of the Muslim reformists. So um, the Muslim Reform Movement was ushered into Algeria by Abdelhamid bin Badis um, after he's educated at, say, Tuna University in Tunis. Um, and he kind of returns to Constantine um, and, and you know, begins this, this movement that then spreads throughout the interwar years um, throughout Algeria. Um and from the very beginning of his movement, um, you know, education of women was was understood as a kind of important cornerstone. So he would offer classes for women in his own in the green Mosque in in Constantine. Um, and for him, he he would, you know, he would speak on this and the, and the fact that, um, you know, Algerian families were suffering because of the lack of education that women had and that women's education was an important part of Islam from its inception and that women who would be educated in, you know, their kind of heritage as Muslims and as Algerians would be able to kind of then foster another generation who would be more, um, who would be more, uh, you know, in a better position socially and intellectually. Um, and what's really interesting about Ben Badis is that what he creates really sets into motion a lot of important later dynamics. So he um he says in the interwar years that he's against the participation of women in, you know, high political positions, for example. And yet, because he, you know, encourages the creation of these schools for for girls, um, you know, those girls educated in that first generation of Muslim reformist schools later do go on to be politicians in a, you know, post-independence Algeria. Um, And so that's what I mean when I talk in the book about feminist possibility, is that, even though, you know, we might be able to poke holes in the kinds of feminism of some of these social actors, they're still espousing ideas that then prove to be kind of seeds that grow into um, real feminist, you know, activity basically for later generations. Um, so I would say the Muslim reformists are the other really important community Um and then there's, um, you know, there's groups of Sufis who, like, in their newspaper, have a more uh, conservative understanding of, of, uh, of, of women's uh, advancement or, or of women's social roles. Um, who else? And then there's other there's other characters who are kind of hard to pin down where they fall. So um, they're the largest Arabic language newspaper, Al-Najjah, um, the editors of it, you know, on one hand are heralded by the French administration as, um, you know, as kind of favorable towards the French cause. And on the other hand, they're, you um, they, I don't know, they kind of, they just, it's hard to say, they kind of straddle many different communities. So they're from kind of older elite families of Constantine, um, and can be, you know, can both, you know, praise the the kind of social, the women's advancement happening in spaces like Turkey, and then also express ideas that are quite conservative when it comes to Algerian women's uh, social roles. Um, so you have other groups who are kind of harder to put into a neat category. Um, but I would say, yeah, those are kind of some of the main
2: Well, speaking of some of these complex ideas uh, towards women, your second chapter looks at um, a different population, which is working class, urban Muslim women who are participating in public life in new ways through new types of employment. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about who these women are and how those different groups you laid out responded to this new sort of spatial freedom for women?
1: Yeah, so um, in Algeria in the interwar period, like in many other spaces globally, there was uh, massive rural to urban migration. Um, And so you have these uh, cities like Algiers, but, you know, even smaller towns that are just, you know, across Algeria. You have um, new arrivals from rural um, areas, and many of these are coming in search of work. Um, And so you have these classes of women who are used to participating in the economic life of their family, you know, through agricultural work, through various uh, forms of work completed within the home, um, and arrive in these cities kind of ready to work. Um, and many of these women become domestic workers um, in European homes. So in um, 1936, for example, the official figures are almost 15,000 women working as domestic workers, but um, these numbers were likely much higher because a lot of these arrangements were kind of informal arrangements that might not have been recorded in official statistics. Um, by 1954, though, the official statistics put it at about 23,000. So there's an increase basically from the early 20th century um, to, you know, throughout throughout the 20th century in the number uh, of women who are participating in, in the labor force, joining the labor force as domestic workers. Uh, and I write about how this is a real, this is a really big deal for a few reasons. Um, one, that... Um, from the beginning of the French colonial project in Algeria, the Muslim areas of neighborhoods like or of, the, of the city, you know, in, in some cities called the Casbah, um, are kind of coded as these spaces of licentious possibilities. The fact that these women are working in European homes and moving through the city every morning en route to work is a really big deal for a couple reasons. Uh, One, that the norm in these cities before the arrival of these migrant women was was that urban elite women were much more, um, you know, I don't want to say sequestered, because I think some of those claims are a little bit exaggerated, but definitely more limited in their in their kind of social in their public role. public roles. Um, and so first of all, it's just this big it, it, surprise to see these masses of women every morning leaving the Muslim areas of the city and going into European areas of the city. Um, that's like a big, this big optic, uh, shift in the optics of the city. Um, but second, it's an inversion of older patterns of movement in, that kind of dictate who is authorized to move where in colonial cities. So um, previously, European men would come into Muslim neighborhoods like the Casbah of Algiers, for example, um, in search of sex, wanting to buy sex from, from prostitutes, uh, sex workers and, um, And in this period when women start working as domestic workers, now it's Muslim women or or Algerian women who are moving into European spaces um, on a regular basis and intimate spaces as well into their homes. Um, And so there's also this kind of inversion of older patterns of movement that's that's quite interesting. Um, And. This, these these shifts in the optics of the city that I mentioned produce this kind of panic in the press so you have a lot of commentators um, in the press noting that they're they're quite alarmed by this uh, they think that this is you know a kind of predictable maybe sex panic that um, you know is this movement that 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 we're seeing really opening the door to other forms of kind of licentious possibility you know what they they say they're in the streets to go to work but you know who knows where they're really going and what why are they wearing makeup and why are they wearing such noisy jewelry and, you know, all this kind of um yeah, panic basically about these women's movement, and and I argue that that panic is also a kind of economic anxiety, right? Because there's massive male unemployment in this period, so to have women, um, you know, be the ones who are earning a more steady income that's helping support their family, even though of course their their wages earned were quite meager, um, is a real shift, um, and that provokes a lot of economic anxiety that is expressed through this kind of you know, discords in, in the press that's, that's uh, nervous and panicked and focuses on sexuality.
2: So your next chapter turns to education and you've spoken a little bit already in this um, interview about what the educational landscape looked like for Algerian girls in this period. But what are some of the main arguments for women's education that these commentators are citing at the time? So there's a few different kind of strands that,
1: um, that, tend to come up one is obviously a reference to islamic history um, so there is a, a a turn towards you know the kind of example of the prophet muhammad of the women around the prophet muhammad f- at islam's inception um, and oh you know these women were poets they were teachers they were you know they had all of these important kind of functions in society um, and we need to educate our women so that they can you know play those same roles um As well as other forms of citing other forms of Islamic knowledge, so hadith from the Prophet Muhammad that you know education is mandatory for men and women, um, things like that to kind of reframe education for women as not a kind of European import or as a European um, feminist project, but rather something that was inherent to Islam and Muslim societies from their inception. Um, and then the other big reference set of references as to what was happening in the Middle East. So uh, people, uh, Algerian commentators look to spaces like Turkey and Egypt that they see in these massive moments of kind of social upheaval and. Um, and they argue that, look, there's all of this progress happening in the Middle East. And this progress is important, um, one, because it proves that the French are wrong when they say that we're misog- we're so misogynist because we're Muslim. Because look at these other Muslim societies and they have women's advancement and they have, you know, a women's education and all these things. Um, but also that this is proving that... Um, Such a thing could happen in Algeria, too. Um, and, And they're arguing that women's education is a kind of first step for Algeria to be able to access some of that modernity and progress that other Middle Eastern spaces are enjoying.
2: So your next chapter is one that is probably a familiar debate to anyone who works on this region, which is the debate over women's failing and this sort of perennial obsession by the West with what women are wearing on their heads in this region Um, and i think you do a really cool thing which is to broaden the scope of this so that it's not just about the hijab it's actually a gendered history of headwear and that includes men's hats so can you talk a little bit about the different meanings of men's headwear during this period and how that context helps change our understanding um, of the veil sure yeah um so it's funny i mean like i said at
1: the beginning uh you know i didn't want to write about <laughs> muslim women in general and the veil was another one of those topics like i'm not doing this we've we've done this enough you know we're done talking about this um and yet you know as i was in the archives and reading these newspapers um, the discussions about the hat kept jumping out at me. And, you know, you have those friends who are also historians who happen to be at the archives at the same time. And, you know, maybe you meet for lunch on your lunch breaks. And at lunch, I'm like telling them, like, you guys, they keep talking about hats. Like, it's really, it's really important. Like, it feels like there's a story here. You know, you feel like you're like a journalist or something like digging for scraps. And you're like, there's a story here about the hats because this is crazy. The amount, the amount that it comes up and the and the kind of significance that it, it can clearly holds, um, and so I start digging deeper, um, and then I and then I kind of yeah had the idea to do a kind of comparative look at at the discussions around men's headwear, and the discussions about the veil um, to kind of a little bit undo exactly what you're talking about, right? This this obsession with the veil as such a particular marker of Muslim society and, and as something that only makes sense within the context of Muslim society, I kind of position it alongside men's hats to say, look, there's all sorts of forms of clothing that become densely layered with meaning. Um, and the veil is one of them, but there are others. And, and, you know, in some ways it coheres to a lot of these other kinds of clothing that, you know, become very uh, meaningful in different moments throughout history, globally even. Um, so that's what that chapter is, is kind of of trying to do.
2: And can you talk a little bit about what those meanings are in the hat?
1: Sure. So um, there's three kinds of hats that, you know, get talked about a lot in the press. So um, one is the amama or the turban. Um, And this is something that would have been worn by uh, religious officials, so judges, um, educators uh, in schools, um, imams, people like that. Um, Then there's the tarbush or the fez. Um, which, you know, was worn by a variety of men and, um, you know, takes on a very interesting meaning in this period because on one hand it's this Ottoman import, a kind of classic symbol of like a particular Ottoman modernity. But in this period, because it's always viewed in opposition to the European hat, um, it, it takes on this new meaning as a kind of marker of Algerian identity, a kind of resistance to cl- to claims that Algerians need to assimilate to European culture. Um, and it really takes on that meaning in response to Ataturk uh, in Turkey's hat law of, I believe, 1925, in which he um, outlaws the... The wearing of the tarbush and says that you know men need to wear only the European style hat. Um And so the European style hat is the kind of brimmed hat is the kind of third type. So the amama, the tarbush, and the hat, which they simply call hat, (laughs) Um, uh, which is also, you know, part of what creates this, this like thing of jumping out at the, you know, hat, hat. And you're like, what hat? What are you guys talking about? (laughs) Um, uh, And so, you know, the the, the Turkish context and the Turkish news, you know, about the hat produces these kind of ripple waves in Egypt as well, um, but in Algeria also that I kind of try to map out. um, in which the tarbouche and the hat take on new meanings. And so the hat is understood by many as being an attempt to assimilate to French culture. And there are many in the press who are quite resistant to that and saying that, you know, you shouldn't. You shouldn't try to look like the colonizer, and to do so is a kind of a betrayal of your people. Um, and then there are others who say, you know, hats change all the time. This is no big deal. This is just a question of style. This doesn't have to do with you know political affiliation. Um, but you know, th- those are some kind of some of the ways that this becomes charged in this period.
2: Well, speaking of the colonizer, um, your next chapter is looking at French feminists and how French women are participating in these debates. um, And you describe these interwar French women as embodying a, quote, new feminist imperialism. What does that actually look like? And how are they engaging with the Muslim population of Algeria? So this was another
1: chapter I initially didn't envision writing, partly because I felt like, actually, when you start digging into the question of Muslim women in Algerian um, society, the kinds of topics that that, you know, much of the scholarship is focused on is precisely this, how these women have been kind of targeted by European feminism. Um, And so I felt like there's plenty written about this, you know. Um, But what jumped out at me that I wanted to talk about was how I felt like, again, in the same way that with Algerian history broadly, we focused so much on the colonial relationship and missed the connection to the Middle East, I felt that with these feminists too, between French feminists and Algerian women was this connection to the Middle East that had thus far been unexplored. So what I talk about is how um, European feminists were kind of watching the advancements of of Middle Eastern women with a real anxiety. Um, They noticed that Turkish women had the right to vote before they did, for example, Um, and they were concerned that Egyptian women might get the same right. Um and that they, they felt that these this progress that Middle Eastern women had experienced kind of um it, it threatened French women's ability to claim this civilizational authority. You know, how can we claim that we're really the most advanced nation and the most feminist nation if these Muslim women are kind of outdoing us? Um, and so I argue that that helps us see them in a little bit of a more tenuous light. Their, their position of power over Algerian women is kind of tenuous because it's tenuous within their own society because of their inability to have suffrage. Um, and their they're kind of constant calls for suffrage and uh, and you know those calls are being un- unheard unmet um. And so I argue that yeah, there it, it helps us p- position them out or, or kind of nuance the um, the relationship, it, the colonizer colonized dichotomy in which they are presumed to have so much power because they're French and not Algerian. Um, it helps us see yeah, the anxiety kind of complicates some of that. I argue that they rely on Algerian women really in their calls um, for suffrage because they're they're saying the argument that they're making to Alger. French society broadly, is that we deserve suffrage because we can access Algerian women in a way that no one else can. And Algerian women trust us and Algerian society trust us. And the state has sh- fallen short in many of these different ways to reach these women. But we can do that. And so you need us. And so the least we deserve in exchange for this, what we can do for the kind of failing colonial project is, uh, is suffrage. Um, and so I argue that they kind of need these Muslim women, they need Algerian women to be able to kind of make these larger arguments to French society. Um, and so that that's kind of what I mean by a new imperial feminism is that first of all, it's more transnational. It's also looking to... Um, the Middle East, and I'm thinking of the work of Nova Robinson, for example, on um, women's conferences and all this kind of international organizing that's happening. Um, but also that that their position of power is getting increasingly tenuous as time is passing, and they still have not uh, attained suffrage.
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting new perspective on that relationship. Um, The bulk of your book looks at the interwar period, which we've been talking about, but you shift towards the end to uh, post-World War II. How do the the frames of this debate change after the war?
1: So, um, you know, nationalism definitely begins as a kind of ideology earlier in the 20th century, but it kind of, it, you know, is, is growing and growing and growing and expanding. And I argue that by the, the period after World War II, it's really taken root in society. And that's not to say it's not still contested. Of course it is, as like others, as others have argued, it's contested even throughout the War of Independence nationalism continues to grow and grow and grow. So by this period of the the late 40s, um, it's really taken hold as a kind of dominant political ideology. Um, And that spills into the discussions about women as well, because suddenly the discussions shift from being about, you know, Algeria's place vis-a-vis the Middle East in the world broadly, as they were in the interwar period, to being about Algeria as a kind of nationalist Cohesive space in which, um, you know, women's advancement is in service of the Algerian nation in service of the Algerian people. The discourse really shifts, um, and you can see it in those in those late forties discussions in the late forties. The other big shift that really pushed me to to write a chapter that kind of the final chapter of the book that kind of moves beyond the inner warriors and focuses on this period of the late 40s um is the the fact that women's voices enter the discussions in a much much bigger way so in the inner warriors there's maybe a dozen or so women's women's voices that appear in algerian publications Um, But by by the 40s, you're just seeing it in this much, much bigger way. So I look at one publication in particular, As Salam, which was a kind of cultural review, but had this women's page. And the editor of the women's page solicits um, letters from Algerian society. And so you get dozens and dozens of women writing in and saying, this is my experience. This is my life. Um, And so it just like really expands our understanding of, of women's lived realities, um, in this moment. So on one hand, there's, there's this nationalism that's, that's become more and more dominant, but on the other hand, there's, um, more women's voices who are both, you know, affirming that nationalist perspective, but also kind of writing back against some of the, um, you know, claims within it.
2: And those women who are writing back, who are using those new platforms, um, what are they saying about these issues, about things like marriage and education?
1: So they kind of rightly, <laughs> rightly, I think, uh, criticized how um, you know so much of the discourse from the interwar years on is focused on women as these kinds of bearers of tradition, of culture, um, but also advancement and modernity. Women are kind of these pillars in society. And what women do in the late 40s, when they have this platform of the women's page of As-Salam, is they begin to level more of a critique. And the critique is twofold. First, there's the same critique, which was leveled by women in the interwar years as well, at aimed at French colonial society saying, you know, how dare you talk about how, you know, um, our our religion oppresses us or our society oppresses us when you've done so little for, French, for, for our society, um, when you haven't educated, offered us access to schools, when you haven't, you know, offered us meaningful access to work, you know, all of these different claims. Um, but there's a second set of claims, which we can really see more clearly in this post- Uh, World War II moment, this post-war moment, is directed at Muslim men. And they say, you know, Muslim men will espouse all of this discourse in the press about the importance of women's education, of the importance of the family, of, you know, a women's capacity to contribute to Algerian society. But in their own private lives, they go and they marry European women. Or uh, they harass women on the streets when women are just, you know, when girls are en route to school. Or uh, they don't respect their wives. They don't give their wives any decision-making power within the family, for example. So they kind of point out this hypocrisy from from Algerian men and say, you know, stop stop centering us in all of these discussions and all of these things. What we need to be doing, and let's talk about you and the fact that like some of you are more comfortable speaking French than Arabic. So don't come and talk to me about like you know how I need to wear the veil to keep our culture intact, for example. Um, you know, there's those kinds of claims being made so it's really interesting because you see, you know, these these interwar discussions come, you know, come up again, but in a different light and with much more critique, basically aimed at aimed at uh, Algerian men.
2: So you conclude this book with a speech by one of these Algerian women, um, Mamia Chantouf, who's the head of the Association of Muslim Algerian Women. And it's a speech that takes place in 1954. So right on the cusp of the outbreak of the Algerian war. Which is, as you write, where a lot of the other historiography on women in Algeria kind of picks up. You know, we know a lot more about this period. Why do you think it's important to pay attention to these debates that are happening in the interwar period? Um, what do they add to our understanding of women in Algerian history?
1: So, I mean, I'll I'll answer this question by rewinding a bit again to talk about you know the process of first beginning this research because that was another thing that came up for me is that when you're interested in learning more about you know, women, Muslim Algerian women in colonial Algeria. So, so much of the literature has focused on women's participation in the war of independence. But what happens before that is this big question mark. I mean, it, it's a, it's like women were locked up in their homes, not allowed to participate in society in any way, and then one day they just busted down the door with a machine gun and pow 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 pow. pow they were ready to fight for the for the Algerian state. It really feels like that's that's like implicitly the story that's told. Um, And so, you know, I, that was also part of the thing that drew me to this project and to focusing on the interwar period is that I felt like there was this big, um, you know absence in the in the scholarship and and you know it had a, it led me to a, you know, a lot of questions um, and so there's a um, there's one person I I cite um, who appears in Natalia Vince's book um, Our Fighting Sisters um, who says this woman says that her mother who was of the interwar generation was quote um, illiterate but hyper politicized um, and so I kind of wanted to understand. The, who are these women? Who are these women of the inner warriors who are you know aware of all of these dynamics going on around them, but still uneducated, illiterate, um, you know, uh, unable to kind of participate in this bigger way? Um, so, you know, again, that's kind of what drew me to this project, what shaped this project from its inception. Um, but I think so. I think in some ways, the inner warriors provide this important prehistory. But more important than that, I think we really can see how um, these feminist seeds that are planted in the interwar years blossom by the war of independence in which women are participating in this much bigger way. So you have women like <laughs> Zahur for example, um, writing in Arabic language publications um, in the 50s, urging women to to participate in the War of Independence. And she's citing the example of women around the Prophet Muhammad um, in early Islamic history and how they participated in war. And she's saying, look, there's this prophetic example of women's participation um, in in society. And, you know, we need to, you know, (laughs) take this seriously and and take up arms if you have to, to defend your people. Um, and, And she was, you know, among the first generation of women who was educated in these Muslim reformist schools that come up in the interwar years. Um, And so it's a perfect example of like, you wouldn't have the kind of mobilization that comes up later if there hadn't been earlier generations of women who um, either were educated or at least were part of families who are beginning to espouse and understand these ideas that, you know, women have a valuable role to play in society. Um, And so I think it kind of helps us make sense of what comes later. um, And again, illustrates this idea of feminist possibility.
2: Well, I think it's a great contribution to this conversation around the interwar period that I think is happening in a lot of different quarters right now. Um, And it will sort of force people working on this to take women into account. So thanks for a great book. Um, I'm going to conclude with a final question, which is maybe unfair since this book came out like a month ago, but um, (laughs) what are you working on next? (laughs) Um, so my next project is a history of the Middle East
1: in the sixties and seventies from the perspective of teenage girls. Um, so it asks us, it has a little bit of a similar research question to this project with the first project, which is how does our view of a society shift when we center women who we previously considered to be marginal or even silenced, um, and it's been really fun so far. I've been doing a lot of oral histories with women um, and hearing their stories about, um, you know, their social lives growing up. Um, and it's given me a totally new understanding of different cities in this period. So, um, you know, women talking to me about what it was like in Baghdad, for example, in the 60s, it's like it's it could be a Netflix show. I mean, it's like it's so interesting. Um, and I'm really inspired by, you know, the work of Laila for example in writing women's worlds where she's really trying to tell women's stories and almost take a back seat a little bit as a scholar so right now that's how i'm envisioning the project is as really about um kind of centering these women's stories um but of course it's really really early in the project but i'm i'm excited about it i think the field of um youth is, is is really emerging in an exciting way in Middle Eastern history. So I think there's there's a lot there. And I think that the perspective of these teenage girls will, will change our understanding of, of these cities in this moment, for sure.
2: Well, that sounds extremely fun. And I look forward to having you again on the show in a few years, hopefully. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today. It's really been a pleasure to hear more about the book. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, once again, I'm Rebecca Trickington, and you've been listening to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network, where we've discussed Sarah Rahnama's new book, The Future is Feminist, Women and Social Change in Interwar Algeria, a 2023 release from Cornell University Press. Thank you.